is the Starting Why Podcast. Here we ask entrepreneurs, actors, investors, innovative, and artists on the why. Why they are doing what they are doing, what motivates and drives them, and why can't they stop. We will start in five, four, three, two, one. Hey guys, hello and welcome back to Starting Why, where we talk about why you start and how to think about your life, your business and entrepreneurship and everything else. We help you here to build your own mental framework. Or just before this interview, I was talking to our guest, Terry, and we talked about that your mental framework is something like a cloud of dots. And always when we talk here at Starting Why, you can fill another of dots. Terry, I already announced you. Hey, Welcome. Thanks, Joe. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Totally my pleasure. And you gave me a lot of stuff to work with here. I have like two full pages full of stuff we can talk about. And the main theme we want to talk about today is that you, as you said, reinvented yourself several times in your life. And that is something that is also a useful tool set or useful approach for many entrepreneurs who need to think or rethink multiple times, maybe even a month when they are really early with the company, what to do, who am I, what do I want to reach with my company, what is my competition doing, and so on and so forth. So let's dive right in. I've seen you've been a basketball player early on, right? I was. I actually, uh, I grew up in a family with two other brothers. So we were all athletes and I was fortunate enough to play college basketball at the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina. That's part of the NCAA, which is the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is the kind of the governing body over sports and other events within college. And it's divided up into Division One, which are the bigger schools, Division Two and Division Three. Division three are the smaller schools, which really don't give athletic scholarships, but they still have basketball teams, football teams, et cetera. So yeah, I was very fortunate to play all the way up through college. That is very good. And usually the rumor is the very good athletes, they also have uh, good chances to find a pretty girlfriend there. <laughs> no, Absolutely. No need, to, <laughs> no need to comment on that. And then you've been working with the companies most Americans may know, Wendy's. I would say for everybody who has not been to the US, you can describe it as a competitor of McDonald's or Burger King. Absolutely. That's exactly. Wendy's, McDonald's, Burger King. Some people may have heard overseas of Kentucky Fried Chicken. Those are probably the big four in terms of uh, fast food or quick service restaurants. So yeah, it's kind of funny. My father worked for McDonald's. He was the national director of real estate for them. And I ended up working for Wendy's in their marketing department. So I had a lot of fast food in my blood growing up. I assume there were very interesting conversations going on during Thanksgiving between you and your father. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> There really were. I mean, dad was, you know, he started out, you know, working regionally for McDonald's and then eventually got promoted to their corporate headquarters to do, you know, be the national director, which was great because their corporate headquarters was in Chicago and our family was from Chicago. My mom and dad were born there. Two of my brothers, one of my brothers and I were born there. So yeah, Chicago is kind of home in a lot of ways. 
people know that I love food and love details, but Chicago deep dish pizza. Mm, oh, oh, yeah, it's very good. <laughs> I wasn't able to find a place here in Frankfurt, even though there is a big American community due to the very great connections everywhere, but also to history. Big American community, but I could not find yet a deep dish pizza restaurant here. So there's still a big gaping hole in the market here, but it's something I really miss. And then you started working at a hospital. How do you go from, well, that is an unfortunate question because I want to ask you, how do you go from Wendy's to hospital? It was actually a fairly seamless transition. When I left Wendy's, I was a supervisor in new product marketing. So all the different types of, of whether it was a day part in terms of breakfast or whether it was a specific menu item in terms of, say, uh, hot dogs or something like that. I got to be involved in a lot of development when it came to, are we going to put a certain product or a certain day part into the restaurants? And so the hospital actually was a fairly large hospital. It was about 1,100 beds, about 5,000 employees. And they started a new program development process. And so it was, I was really able to take what I learned at Wendy's and sort of insert that within the hospital to work with other people. And I, I have no medical background. So it was, you know, somebody in respiratory therapy or somebody in pharmacy that wanted to start a new program. It was working with marketing. It was working with finance. It was working with their operational people to how we go about doing that. So it was more or less coordinating a process of developing new programs within the healthcare system. I see. I would call it a little bit like program management. Yeah, in a lot of ways it was. Like I said, I don't have any medical background. So when, you know, say respiratory therapy wanted to put in a new machine or a new program, I didn't know anything about the medical side of it, but I could help with the business side of, is this a viable program? Is this going to make us money or is it going to be a loss leader, something we still want to do that'll bring people into the hospital we can make money on down the road? So it was more of a business role as opposed to a medical role. And apparently you then got married and moved to the other side of the U.S., I did. We moved to Santa Barbara, California, probably one of the most beautiful cities that I've ever had the opportunity to live in. It was a great opportunity. My wife has always been the primary breadwinner in our family. So we kind of go where she goes, which has been great. I've been able to sort of indulge my passions, my purpose in life because she was able to take care of a lot of the finances in that. So it worked out for me in a lot of good ways. And there you invented yourself again. And then you've been a customer service manager for academic publication. And then you moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio, and then became a SWAT hostage negotiator. That was one of the steps where I thought usually his stops before had something to do with like program management more or less. And then you start negotiating. Did you have to negotiate so hard for all your budgets in the program? It's kind of interesting if you, you know, you sort of, there's a backstory to all this and I'll try to set that up for you for a little bit. So my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad was a Chicago police officer from 1924 to 1954. And there were a lot of things going on in the United States back then. Prohibition, when alcohol was outlawed in the United States, we had a great depression in the late 20s 
early 30s. And then we had a lot of gangsters that were kind of shooting up the town. And my grandfather was actually shot in the line of duty with his own gun. It wasn't a serious injury. He was shot in the ankle. But my dad always remembered the stories my grandmother told of the knock on the door of Mrs. Tucker, grab your son, come with us, your husband's been shot. And so when I expressed an interest in going into law enforcement, my dad was like, absolutely not. You're going to go to college. You're going to major in business. You know, you're going to get out, get a good job. My dad had my entire life planned for me, but it was the life my father wanted me to live. It wasn't the life that I felt I was born to live. So when I graduated from college, I had a choice. My father was sick. He had cancer. He was dying. So I had a choice. I could say, sorry, dad, I'm going to go blaze my own trail and get into law enforcement. Or my other choice was out of love and respect for him, I will go into business and do what he wants me to do. So if you look at my resume, as you said, my first two jobs with Wendy's and in hospital administration were business related jobs. And that's what my dad wanted me to do. And I sort of joke, I did what every good son did. I waited till my father passed away and then I followed my own dreams. So those first two jobs are really what my dad wanted me to do. Law enforcement was really my passion, my purpose, my why, whatever you want to call it. I got into that late in life. I was a 37-year-old rookie police officer, which by many accounts is pretty old to be getting into that line of work. But that must have been a very traumatic shift in your life from taking care of machines, of medical products, to really negotiating with people who hold hostages. How did you approach that? How did you transform yourself? If you think about what a police officer does, I mean, 99% of what we do is face-to-face -face with another human being, whether we're pulling them over to give them a ticket you know, for speeding or whether we're answering a radio run for a fight or a domestic situation or whether we're knocking on your door to tell you to you know, call the hospital because grandma passed away. Whatever the situation was, it was always face-to-face. -face. But as negotiators, we weren't face-to-face -face with people. We were sometimes blocks away talking on the phone. A lot of times, best-case scenario, is we were on the other side of a locked door where they had barricaded themselves or had taken hostages. So we had to figure things out based on what people were saying, what they weren't saying, and how they were saying it. And if you think about hostage negotiating, we have kind of two brains. We have a rational brain and we have an emotional brain. And when we start negotiating with somebody, their emotional brain is way up in the air and their rational brain is kind of down on the ground. I always kind of, if you picture a teeter-totter or a seesaw at the park that we all played on as little kids, you think about, okay, their rational brain down on the ground, emotional brain way up in the air. And over time, by asking them open-ended questions and getting them to talk and burn off a lot of that emotional energy, that teeter-totter, that seesaw kind of comes to an equilibrium. And then over more time, again, asking more questions and getting them to talk, their rational brain now is up in the air and their emotional brain is down on the ground. And that's the time when we can talk about solutions to the problem, letting the hostage go or putting the gun down and coming out, because we all make better decisions using our rational brain as opposed to our emotional brain. So that was one big thing that I learned. The other thing that was very important in what we did was trust. This was building a relationship. And I don't care whether you're in business as an entrepreneur, I don't care if you're in a relationship with your spouse or your significant other, 
or you're a negotiator negotiating with somebody who's taken a hostage, there's a relationship that's built there. And that relationship has to be built on trust. So we never lied to people. People would sometimes say to us, hey, I'll come out, but you got to promise me I'm not going to go to jail. And we would have to say to them, well, when you do come out, you are going to go to jail. And then we would try to deflect the conversation to something that was more positive. So we never lied to somebody because there was always the chance that a year from now or two years from now, we were going to be back negotiating with this person again. And if they felt we lied to them, we deceived them in any way, they were going to say, hey, you know what? I don't trust you. And you'd have to bring in another negotiator because if you don't have that trust factor, there's no way you're going to be successful in that relationship. So it's always about building trust there, but it's also a very good approach if you want to find a co-founder, a investor, clients, of course, the more valuable are the stuff are the things you are selling, maybe a physical product, maybe software, the more trust you need, especially for the investors that they hand over a lot of money there. And the question for me would be, what did you learn there about building trust, like tools, approaches, or just some ideas that stuck to your mind that people out there would be able to apply here? I think one of the biggest things I learned is the importance of listening. You know, it's always been said that the best salespeople are not the best talkers, they're the best listeners. Again, a lot of times as we were negotiating, we would spend two hours kind of on a topic that had absolutely nothing to do with what we were really there for. But the person we were negotiating with had to kind of burn off a lot of that, you know, emotional energy so that they were ready to get to a point where they could actually start now dealing with the situation at hand. So I would say listening, and we're all guilty of this, you know, the difference between listening to respond versus listening to understand. And, you know, if you think about it, whether you're, whatever you are, whether you're, you know, negotiating with somebody, you know, on a, for a building or you're a salesperson and you're trying to get somebody to buy your product or your service, You have to understand what they want, what they're looking for, and not just kind of go in there like a bull in a china shop and be like, you know, well, here, let me tell you why we're great. That puts people off. That says you're not listening to me. You're not understanding what I'm trying to do. You may be able to do that at a certain point in time, but to go into it like, you know, I've got this great product and I'm going to tell you why it's going to help you. I think the importance of listening before that What does the customer want? What is this person saying? And again, what are they saying and what aren't they saying? What do you do in your research? What do you do when you're trying to figure out who this company is or who this person is? In your research, what did you uncover about them? So it's not so much necessarily what they're saying. It's also about what they're not saying and how you can deliver a product or a service that will help them to either be more successful in, you know, in their endeavor or how you can negotiate a better deal for yourself based on what you are saying to them. My daughter and her husband just bought a house where they live. And it was interesting because a builder who designs the house, buys the land and then builds the house. And there were other offers on it, but the builder said that he chose their offer because they spent the time to ask him about him and his business. 
you know, tell me about why you did this. Tell me about how you got into this. Again, goes back to what I was talking about negotiating, developing a relationship. You know, yeah, I want to buy a house from you, but no, this has got to go deeper. Tell me about you. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your upbringing. Oh, you expressed interest in me. Oh, okay. Now all of a sudden I like you. Now we're developing a relationship. And based on that relationship, hopefully we can develop business relationships as well. That is actually a very important fact I've learned over time when I started out as an entrepreneur, as a freelancer. I also had this idea of being very aggressive, very loud. Then you can sell stuff, but actually it's the complete opposite. I totally agree with you there. And I think there are very important points already that you can use something like this. But going a little bit to what we promised our audience, the skill set you have developed over time to basically transform yourself. Can you lead us through a little bit what you realized what works and also what did not work for you? I guess I would start sort of as an umbrella with you need to be a lifelong learner. I started out in, in fast food and then changed industries into healthcare and you know then went to an entirely different job in law enforcement And then I started my own school security consulting business. I guess I'll say one of the things, and we've always told our daughter this, is to play to your strengths. What are you good at? And if you don't have certain skills, can you bring people in that do have those skills? I'm reading a book now called Team of Rivals, and it's about the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, when he put his cabinet together, his advisors together, He didn't look at necessarily, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? He looked at who is the best person to be in this job? Who is the best person that can advise me? And that was sort of something even today that is foreign, at least here in the United States, where if you're a Republican president, you're going to pick Republican advisors, Republican cabinet members. And the same thing, you know, if you're a Democrat president, you're going to pick Democratic advisors. And what Lincoln was saying, no, I'm going to pick the best people for the job based on what I don't know. I don't know these things. Maybe I'm not really good at diplomacy. Well, who's good at diplomacy? Well, that person's in another party. Can I still put them in place? And Lincoln felt he could and was successful at it. I guess I'll give you four quick, what I call my four truths. And I think these can be adapted for, I've used them through my cancer journey, but I think they can be adapted. I know they can be adapted for your business. And they're just one sentence, and I'll give them to you real quick. The first one is you need to control your mind or your mind is going to control you. And I think where that applies in business is, are you the kind of person who you know looks at the glass as half full or as half empty? And if your mind is putting negative thoughts into your brain, one of the chapters I wrote in my book is entitled that most people think with their fears and their insecurities instead of using their minds. So as an entrepreneur, it's like, hey, I want to get in this business. Oh, wait a minute. It scares me. I'm a little nervous. Do I have the resources? Do I have the knowledge? Do I have the education? Do I have the background to be successful at that? And a lot of people are like, oh, no, I don't. So I can't do that. And I think what that says is you need to control your mind. You need to tell yourself, yeah, it's going to be hard, but can I learn something here? Can I keep going 
even though I may make mistakes along the way. So many people are not willing to even try and think about that. You're going to be so much further ahead if you have even a small amount of grit to go ahead and pursue your dreams because so many people aren't willing to take the chance on an unknown outcome. So that's the first one, control your mind. The second one is embrace the pain and the difficulty that we all experience in life and use that pain and difficulty to make you a stronger and more resilient individual. You know, there's no such thing as an overnight success. I mean, all of a sudden this burst on the scene had all kinds of failures along the way. And I really think failure is the driveway to that, you know, million dollar mansion. You've got to fail before you can succeed. And I think it's important, especially when you're young, to fail and to fail often, to take chances, to step outside your comfort zone to improve yourself. So anytime you experience pain in life, instead of running from it, what I would suggest is do just the opposite. Take that pain, internalize it, flip it inside, burn it as fuel, use it as energy to make you a more resilient individual. So that's number two. Number three is kind of more of a legacy truth. I think it's important regardless of where we are in the stage of our life, whether we're just starting out, whether we're in middle age, whether we're towards the end, to look at the end game of our lives. And what would people say about us at our funeral? You know, what do we want people to say? I mean, this was a great guy. He was a great entrepreneur. But I think the important thing about this, and I'll give you the quote here, is what you leave behind is what you weave in the hearts of other people. And I listened to a a YouTube video the other day by David Brooks, who's a, a New York Times columnist, and he was talking about our values. But he was talking about two different values. Is it the value of your resume or the value of your eulogy? What guides you? I mean, the value of your resume where you're, you know, I got to be tough. I got to be strong. I got to be aggressive or the value of your eulogy where he was a good man, a caring man, a loving man, things like that. So you have to look at how you develop your life based on the values that you have in that. And I don't think a lot of people spend time really thinking about what their values are, whether it's values of how I want to operate as an entrepreneur or as a business person, or how I want to operate as a human being. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. You can operate the same way as an entrepreneur as you can as an individual and still be successful. So that's number three. And then finally, number four, as long as you don't quit, you can never be defeated. And for me, having cancer right now, the way I look at that is my pain, my difficulty is going to end someday. Man through surgery, it may end through medication. Quite frankly, it may end when I die. But if I quit, if I give up, if I give in to pain, then pain is always going to be a part of my life. As an entrepreneur, as a business person, you're going to have pain. There are going to be bad days. But do you quit when those obstacles, when those impediments you know, get in your way? In the United States, we're great about, oh, wait a minute, something blocked my way, so I'm going to quit now. I'm going to give up. But then we want to blame somebody. Very few people in life take personal responsibility for their own success and happiness. I'm actually here still thinking about it, but that actually sounds like a very, very good framework you have here, especially worked out in like four points. And we also again highlighted how important it is to be not 
that aggressive when you sell something. And of course, about uh, the value of trust, I do believe that are some points that we've made in the past quite a few times. Trust is huge. And again, trust permeates every part of our lives. You know, whether we're a business person, whether we're just starting out, whether we're working for somebody else, you know, relationships with our kids, with our spouse, with whatever. Trust is really the overlying umbrella to whether or not people are going to want to do business with you. You know, just like if uh, I'm negotiating with somebody, if they don't trust me, I'm not going to be successful as a negotiator. Well, if companies or people don't trust you, they're not going to work for you. They're not going to want to do business with you. They're not going to want to be involved with you. So trust is a huge thing. And again, it goes back to, you know, your value. Your values as an entrepreneur, your values as a business person can be the same values you have outside the office, you know, how you conduct your life with other people. So don't think they need to be mutually exclusive. They don't. You can still be tough and aggressive, but you can also be kind and caring about other people as well. Very, very important points here. I'm just trying to think if our audience could take a few more good points from you experience you have made. As you said, you're pretty open about it. You have cancer. I do believe there are also some things you have learned to deal with it, right? I have. I mean, I think the big things I've learned are what I call my four truths. But I also think that whenever you're facing something, you tend to think of it as being in a vacuum. You know, so if you're starting a company, it's like, okay, you know, I am starting a company. But if you think about it, there are all kinds of touch points along that way, whether it's your spouse. I mean, is your spouse with you along this journey? Or are they just kind of a, I recall a, there was a president here in the United States by the name of Harry Truman, who was a, a vice president for President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, during World War II. And Roosevelt was a, a huge leader in the United States that guided the country through World War II, but died unexpectedly in office. And here's this vice president who really didn't have much of a role that is now thrust into, I am the commander in chief of the United States during World War II. Well, his wife didn't want to have anything to do with him being president. She didn't want to be involved. She actually went back to Missouri, one of the states here in, in the United States, and lived her life while Truman was being president of the United States. I mean, imagine you know yourself, yes, I want to start a business, but do you have the support of your family? Do you have the support of your friends? Do you have the support of suppliers and things like that? And I always say, Joe, you know, if I didn't know you, but I knew the five people you hung around with the most, I could tell you a lot about you. And so I think it's important for all of us to look at our inner circle. Who are the people that we surround ourselves with the most? Are those kind people, caring people, loving people, people that will support us and people who will risk their relationship with us in order to tell us the truth? because they love us enough to do that? Or are you surrounding yourself with people that are all about them, that all they care about is what they can get from you? And if you're not surrounding yourself with people that uplift you, you know, it's gonna be hard enough to start a business as it is, but if you don't have the right people around you that are like, you know, yeah, Joe, this was a tough day, but you know what, you're gonna get through this. If you don't have those people around you, it's gonna be that much more difficult to get your business off the ground. Yeah, totally true. 
I remember a conversation I had with one of my first business angels. He told me that actually the decision for your domestic partner, for your wife, is more important for the success of your business than the first few business angels, especially considering it's long term. Yeah, that's right. And I actually had to smile a little bit when he told me like the five people who around me most, especially since my little boy is definitely part of this. That would be an interesting analysis here. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I mean, that would be very interesting. You don't yeah. realize, you know, your impact. I mean, when I was a police officer, I was working nights most of my police career. And I made a conscious effort to always say, I don't care how little sleep I get. I'm going to be at my daughter's, you know, games and recitals and plays and all that kind of stuff because my family was incredibly important to me. And, you know, think about it. There were nights that I went to work and I carried a gun and had to make life and death decisions on three or four hours of sleep. But that was the sacrifice I was willing to make with the understanding that, you know what, I want my family. My family is my number one priority. As much as I love being a police officer, my family was everything to me. And they grounded me. They grounded me in the things that, you know, I had to see as a police officer that I had to be involved in. And the same thing with you, you know, are you an entrepreneur that, you know, do you get home and, you know, kick the dog and, you know, are surly with your wife and yell at your kids? Or is your family the touchstone, the grounding point for you to be successful in your life? And if you don't have people that come along with you along that journey, I don't care if you get to the end of the rainbow and you get that pot of gold, it's going to be awful lonely if you don't have anybody there to share it with. That is totally true. And actually, I would say that a great closing words for this interview, because you packed it so dense with interesting stuff. I do believe I have a few days that I would need to really think about it. Well, good. I'm glad I got you to think. I think that's real important. I think that goes back <laughs> to being a lifelong learner. As long as you're still thinking, there's still hope. Yes, exactly. Terry, it was a big pleasure having you here. Thank you very much for being a guest. Well, thanks, Joe, for having me. I hope your audience got something really good out of our conversation. I am sure they did. Thank you very much.